Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 23 through 29. Hear now the word of our Lord. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord, your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God's Spirit poured out, Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So because we can never hear these things enough, and maybe to give you a chance to get the hand thing going too, (laughs) I'm just going to read the parable again from the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. There were two who went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe, a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, this one went down to his home justified rather than the other. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. So for openers, I have to say that the parable before us this morning is no friend to the preacher on Stewardship Commitment Sunday, it makes the person who tithes look arrogant and self-righteous. So to any of you who may already have tithed or who might be thinking of tithing, let me hasten to say, don't worry even a little bit that you'll appear that way to us. We have nothing but admiration for your generous and visionary leadership. You inspire us and you set the bar high for us. 
thank you. Now, as I'm sure you know, Jesus had more to say about the subject of money and wealth than he did about just about any other topic. But this parable, on the face of it, isn't really about what we do with the resources that are ours to deploy as conscience directs. It isn't really about how we use what we've got. It's about how we understand who we are. But that understanding may turn out to be the way to tap the deepest generosity we have. We'll see. At first, this parable seems to set up one of those there are two kinds of people in the world scenarios. A binary comparison between a role model and an anti-role model. But if we know anything about Jesus' way of teaching, we know that parable is really another word for conundrum an intentional effort on Jesus' part to turn something that seems familiar and predictable back into a puzzle and to get us leaning forward into it. Jesus is trying to mess with our heads, as is his habit in asking us over and over again to look afresh at people and situations and customs that seem to us self-evidently clear and rethink where we stand and what we value. This, I think, this parable is another one of those moments when we need to let Jesus' teaching complicate our picture on the way to a fresh kind of clarity and a bold new kind of compassion. The two figures whom Jesus picks out in the holy precincts of the temple are almost stock figures in the pages of the gospel. One of them can frequently be spotted elsewhere in the Gospel pages sparring with Jesus about what constitutes good faith and sound observance. The other can frequently be spotted on the hesitating fringes of the community that Jesus welcomes over and again into his restorative company. The first is a Pharisee, a member of a community that prides itself on intentional and rigorous religious observance, and though their reputation for punctilious piety precedes them, we have to remember that there's nothing necessarily repugnant about the spiritual practices that this Pharisee takes great care to follow. The other figure in the sanctuary whose prayer we're allowed to overhear is equally familiar, a tax collector, which is to say a Jew who has chosen to survive the Roman occupation by, in effect, going over to the other side, signing on to the empire's system of extracting money at just about every turn from his own impoverished people who are being forced to carry the empire's expenses on their own backs. But we have to be careful not to read the contrast between the two of them too simply Because, of course, the moment we catch ourselves listening to their contrasting prayers and thinking, well, thank God I'm not like that self-congratulating Pharisee, we have fallen headlong into the same trap that catches him. I have a friend who likes to say, quite simply, people are beautiful when they pray. 
People are beautiful when they pray. I think of that particularly when I watch Muslims pray. And I remember what it felt like the day when one of the Muslim college students whom I had driven to a mosque for the prayers that mark the end of Ramadan came running over to the place where I was sitting respectfully on the sidelines of the masjid and grabbed my hand and pulled me into the line, shoulder to shoulder, with scores of others as the prayers began. I remember what it felt like to touch my bald head to the floor with all those people before the majesty and goodness of God. In that moment, I did remember the prayer of the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In a room full of people praying to the God whom they know quintessentially as the compassionate and the merciful one, al-Rahman al-Rahim. For at least a few minutes, I felt so many dimensions of difference between us and so much fraught history and so many different cultures all merge into the singular, whole, clean beauty of people at prayer. I imagine that you're beautiful, too, when you pray, though so far I've always kept my head bowed with you so I haven't sneaked a peek <laughs> yet. <laughs> I wonder if one way to grab the conundrum of Jesus' parable is to look for the beauty in each of these two people as they pray in their holy place. To see that beauty, we probably have to start by really seeing them. And let's be honest, neither one of them is a paragon. The Pharisee is sanctimonious, and his arrogance certainly mars the beauty of his prayer. And the tax collector is a sinner. Repentance is one thing, but amendment of life is another. And we don't know anything about that yet. They're both drawing on at least some clarity about who they are. And they even both realize how their states of spirit alienate them from each other. Though, of course, one of them is glad for the separation, while the other one laments it. And each of the two of them has some serious spiritual work to do, of which their prayers are only the beginning, or maybe in the case of the Pharisee, not even the beginning, since he seems to leave thinking he's done. What they receive as a result of their respective ways of praying is in both cases in spite of, not because of. Jesus affirms the righteousness of the tax collector in God's eyes in spite of his being a sinner and says that God doesn't yet see the Pharisee that way in spite of his flaunted piety. But each of the two of them knows something true about himself. The Pharisee knows how he enacts his religious commitments, knows what he does and why he does it, knows that God loves us, and knows how it must appear what he does to those around him, 
that he leads a visibly pious life. He thinks that he's turned himself inside out so that the people around him can see what's going on inside him and admire him for it. He contemplates what he thinks are his spiritual successes. Meanwhile, the tax collector knows how he's viewed by others as a stooge of the ruling empire and an extorter of already impoverished people. Knowing that he's failed to enact the things he values, he turns himself outside in and contemplates his own public failures in the solitary anguish of his own contrition. I think part of what can make this parable a conundrum for us in a helpful way is that while each of its two characters is a stereotype, in fact, most of us recognize some of ourselves in each of them. After all, the prophet, the prophet Joel, as Gail read, promised that in the latter days God would pour out God's Spirit upon all flesh, the usual suspects and the first-timers, the women and the men, and maybe even the ones who feel sure they're full and the ones who know for certain they're empty. Emily Dickinson wrote, We believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. What an Emily word that is. <laughs> and I think many of us, when we've prayed, have been both self-satisfied and mortified. Both self-sufficient and needy. Both confident and halting. Which maybe keeps our prayers nimble. Of course, the parable is not neutral about these two attitudes, even if it recognizes the reality of both. There's nothing in the Pharisees' spiritual ecosystem that seems to need God at all. His is the prayer of the sidelong glance. It's all about confirming his location on the planet, not under heaven. Meanwhile, the tax collector's prayer is utterly vertical all about utter dependence on the mercy of God, al-Rahman, al-Rahim. And the parable rewards the awareness of needing God, doesn't it? Rewards the acknowledgement that we are not sufficient unto ourselves. And so does our religious life reward that. Jesus, I think, is trying to remind us that knowing that we need God and knowing that none of us has earned a more luminous place in God's heart by piling up deeds or attitudes or anything else is without a doubt a better way to live. Today, as you've heard and as we've sung, is also Reformation Sunday. And this parable, this story, does us the favor of refreshing our sense of theological heritage as it reminds us that we don't, we can't, earn our place in God's heart. That place has already been prepared for us by the sacrificial love of Jesus, and it is ours only to step into it humbly and gratefully. True, even if we're inclined to borrow the tax collector's prayer, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. Still, we have some spiritual work ahead of us. But knowing that we need to do it, knowing that we want to do it, is how prayer wakes us up. And therein lies our true beauty as we pray. I think of those noble words of the prayer of confession in the first book of common prayer, so early in our Reformation heritage. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And I think of being shoulder to shoulder with a room full of Muslims honoring the mercy of God with their whole bodies. And I think of us here in our big house, our own temple, bringing whatever combination of arrogance and mortification, audacity and humility happens to be here at any given time. I hope that God somehow finds it all beautiful when we pool all the ambiguities and ambivalences of our humanity and lean into the conundrum of prayer, hoping that it will wake us up into a deeper need of God, a deeper love for God, a deeper trust in God. There's a word that comes to me as I think about that waking. As I think about counting on being able to come here and lean into the mercy of God about how much I need that mercy and about how much the world needs that mercy and about what we can do together to make that mercy visible to the world, to coin a phrase. Ardor is what stirs us to make our way to the place of prayer, carrying whatever combination of dispositions we may carry. Ardor is what our gratitude looks like when it finds a structure to be built into, when it finds the living organism of a community to belong to. Ardor is what it looks like when we pool our contrition and our confidence and shape that energy into food salvage at that other big house on game Saturdays. Ardor is what will come out of our veins, the veins of our bared arms, when the Red Cross taps them on Tuesday in Monteith Hall. Ardor is what keeps the angels of Alpha House airborne on their missions of compassion and mercy. Ardor is what built one of the most remarkable and effective resident ministry programs in the entire country that has been infusing fresh waves of ministry into the Presbyterian Church for almost two decades. Ardor is what you'll hear next week when the choir sings its heart out for all the saints. Ardor is what got us from where we were a year ago to where we are now. And ardor is what will show us the way to do the rest of the healing that we need to do and the rest of the hoping that we need to do. All of that, all of that only exists because people bring their ardor here along with whatever they know about themselves and as much honesty and as much courage as they can muster to name their need of God who will welcome them, who will heal them, who will chasten them,
who will humble them, who will feed them. Their need of the God who has, without a doubt, noticed that they are just beautiful when they pray. I invite you to pray together as God's people listening for the Spirit among us. So listening and watchful, God, help us now to be honest. Oh, but we are, but we're not like, not at all like those who can't be trusted with money, the shifty and the feckless. We're generous people and faithful servants, but help us to be honest. For we're nothing like the fat cats or the greedy few or the haves who care nothing for the have-nots. We're so eloquent in the language of sharing. So help us now to be honest in the art of giving. Oh, but we are, we're not like those who like to look good and deceive themselves who talk the talk, but, but. So God, help us this day and tomorrow and on Tuesday and Thursday not only to be talkers, but doers of care and justice, advocates for compassion in a time when it's unpopular to stand for what is whole and holy and just. So help us, God, to be honest, sometimes getting it right, sometimes getting in our own way, sometimes getting in your way. Help us, O oh God, to be honest about our feelings about how far we still have to go. Help us to pray without words, O oh God, but with tears instead. And help us, honestly, this day to love justice, seek mercy, and to walk humbly in your way. As people, but also as a community of faith, attuned to the inflections of your spirit, and sensitive to the many and complex needs of a diverse community, full of faith and doubt and hope. So listening, God, on this day bring us healing, not band-aids that fall off with the slightest drop of water, but healing that hears, appreciates, and validates the multitude of voices in our common life and history. So listening, God, when so many voices trumpet their greatness and so many images boast of their beauty and flaunt their power and friends squander their best opportunities and so many of us miss the opportunities to be channels of mercy. Come among us, O oh God. Break into our hearts so that whenever we're tempted to think of ourselves as better, more worthy, more deserving, more important, send us a critic, O oh God, to prick our pride and reground our spirit. Let your humility daily break in and challenge us, reminding us of our brokenness and need, teaching us to serve and love everyone with the grace and humility you bear. So God, pour out your spirit as we gather and we pray around this table. Enable us to break habits, open hearts, and tend to the community of people around us who bear scars of a homeless, uncertain life. 
Help us to carry food to the tables of those who are hungry and to be shelter and provide shelter for those who have no roof over their heads. Help us to see the rising tide of hunger around us and notice children and families, older adults, who come to food banks now seeking to provide food for the table to make ends meet. Help us to be attuned attuned to the brokenness, loneliness, and pain and and depression that afflicts so many women and men, children and youth. Ease the terror of addiction and offer links to the bands of life. Enlisting God, most of all, hear us now as we tune our hearts to yours, guided by your own pattern and words of prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from sin. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.